Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1928 silent film, The Passion of Joan of Arc. So let's step into Baird Fisher's Video Store. Baird, how you doing? I'm doing okay. Trying to stay warm. <laughs> I think it's even colder than last week when we recorded and talked about how cold it was. Um, I'm going to hold back my opinion on this film for a second. I want to hear your history with uh, with The Passion of Joan of Arc. Yeah, this definitely was a, a film that I sought out because of uh, the film course I taught that I've referred to several times in the past. And it really kind of came about because of um, the uh, the origins I suggested last week where thinking about Norma Desmond and um, her assertion that, you know, back then we had faces and I knew that Dreyer's film, I'd read about Dreyer's film, was one of those films which if any film... Um, exemplifies faces, it's, it's Dreyer's. Uh, and the other origin, I think, of my uh, watching the film was uh, reading an essay on the significance of the close-up. And so, again, Dreyer's film is kind of the, the quintessential close-up film, if you will. So what, was what were students' responses to this? Um, they were actually more receptive than I would have thought. Um, I think that in some ways... Uh, we, we responded to a certain degree as much to the soundtrack, um, the voices of light, as we did to the images. But no, we it, it went pretty well, I would say. Nobody visibly fell asleep. Okay, I have <laughs> to I have to tell you, Barrett. So I watched this on Saturday. My daughter and I we got we got the big screen out. We watched it on the projector. Um, and when it was over, I turned to my daughter and I asked her what she thought, and she was she thought it was very sad. And I said, sure. I think. I think it might be one of the best movies I've ever seen. It's I I cannot tell you how much I love this movie. Um, it, it made me think of I think I said this comment when we watched of Gods and Men. I said, well, that felt like it was kind of built in a laboratory for me to like it. Um, <laughs> and I feel like this movie, even more so, that's the case because it mixes um, movies like some themes from movies like of gods of men and a man for all seasons, two movies that I love. I, I think I'm a sucker for a good Catholic movie as part of it, but it, but it's, it's like, it mixes those themes, but in some ways it's shot through the lens of persona. Like, like there is so many faces in persona. Uh, it is such a, I was overwhelmed by how crisp the images were too. I, I think I was, maybe city lights, prepare me for this like i was expecting things to just feel fuzzier but yeah. instead like it's like every frame was kind of a, an amazing photograph yeah and, and i was blown away by that to the point where kind of like when i watched persona i was pretty shaken by the movie in the best possible way and i got up the next morning on on uh, super bowl sunday morning and i just started watching it again i was like i just i just need to see this movie again um i uh, yeah. Uh, so this is uh, like with persona, it's going to be hard for me to talk about because I loved it so much and in so many different directions. Um, I, I wanna, I'll start with the first thing that I noticed. Um, well, the first thing I noticed was the crispness of the the picture and just how beautifully shot it seemed. Um, but also the, the something that jumped out from almost the initial shots of the film that, that, that also surprised me was how dynamic the camera movement was. That there was just a there was a lot more camera movement than I was expecting. I think I knew about because you had mentioned the faces, and I've seen clips of this movie where you know where you get these extreme close-ups of Falconetti and some of the other actors. But there are a couple tracking shots early where it's just, where they're just tracking through this hall 
behind the people sitting there. And part of it is just how smooth the the movement is. Like, I, I don't know if I expected it to feel like they weren't re- like, like, like filmmaking wasn't ready for long, smooth tracking shots. But I just, I was, I was kind of blown away by that. And then even small camera movements, um, were just were just really really amazing um and there was actually a movement that made my daughter out loud say wow um which is late in the movie um there kind of when the the uh uprising is happening Mm -hmm. there's a shot where it's like the camera goes uh upside down and she just like she said out loud without like as an like instinctually just said wow when that happened uh yeah so i just those are the first things that I noticed as I saw this. Yeah, I, I watched the, uh, the the Criterion disc has a really excellent uh, commentary by a Dreyer Scholar. And when that shot went by, he had nothing to say about it. He said he couldn't explain it. Um, I just always interpreted it as kind of a vision of the world literally, literally turned upside down. That's that's what he's communicating. But back to the camera movement, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, um, Sam, because one of the things that surprised me about revisiting City Lights was how little Chaplin's camera moves. Um, Chaplin really thought of, uh, even though he was a film director, he really thought of film in a more in more theatrical terms. It was almost more like a proscenium arch, and you set the camera up and people move in front of it, but the camera itself stays still. Um, one of the reasons why Dreyer's camera moves is there had been a number of innovations by one of the great early cinematographers, Carl Freund, uh, uh, and Freund, first of all, Freund was the mentor for Rudolf Mate, who was the cinematographer on uh, Passion of Joan of Arc. And one of the things that Freund, Freund had invented a couple of years before was what was called the unchained camera. That is a camera a- allowing movement. Uh, Freund was all about movement. He also, he was one of the people who created tra- uh, tracking shots. And he was one of the first people to put a camera on a, on a crane. Uh, and then, of course, the other thing, now, as an aside, Freund went on to become cinematographer for I Love Lucy, for what that's worth, as the artist's invitation. Um, the other thing that Dreyer did, uh, which is not really camera movement, but camera angles, is uh, he, he uses a lot of low angle shots, uh, especially in the outdoor scenes. And he did this by digging a lot of holes to literally put the camera under the ground. And he dug so, so many of these that the crew said he shouldn't be called Dre or he should be called Gruer because uh, the ground looked like Swiss cheese. <laughs> that's that's awesome. Um, so so there were other works of art that these that that this brought to mind, which is often I think a sign of a of a, of a great work of art is it it feels like oh this reminds me of this and that and they're very dis uh, like from from lots of different um, places. So one of the things I thought of was the. Um, the paintings and sketchbooks of Leonardo da Vinci. I thought a lot about da Vinci was very interested in the human face. So I'm thinking about paintings like uh, the last supper, the adoration of the Magi, where it's a lot of like uh, there, there's a central event and a lot of it is about reaction to something that's said or something that's happening, right. Or the reaction to seeing, uh, seeing the baby Jesus or reacting to what Christ is saying at the last supper reminded me of that. And then in his sketchbooks, um, da Vinci was very fond of like drawing kind of grotesque faces. Like he would look for people who had really, um, I guess grotesque faces is how he, he talked about it. And, and, and like, and this, because of the way this was shot without makeup and the way that they did the lighting, like it really, um, accentuates 
not just Falconetti's face, who has a different set of lighting, but but all of the people in the sort of the judges in this trial. Um, I just was I was struck by how um, how much even the the imperfections of their faces said mm-hmm. something about them, and it made their their facial expressions like you could see so much in it. So that 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 was one set of of works of art that I thought a lot about, um, and then the other was. And this is this is very different than Da Vinci. How much this made me think of sort of late '80s and early '90s music videos, like more pretentious music videos. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like you could take. Uh, there's a lot of late '80s, early '90s songs you could lay under this, and it would just because of because it's it's pretty quick cutting between faces and things like that. That it's like it's like this somehow inspired a, a, an era of MTV too. It feels like. Well, it's funny you should say that because the films actually had a number of different uh, musical settings. Uh, Dreyer had no preference. In fact, Dreyer thought the film could be shown without music at all. He wasn't particularly interested in that. But, you know, back to what you said about the faces, it's interesting that um, black and white in general is a better medium for the face. Um, It's one of the reasons why Orson Welles, to make a connection back to Citizen Kane, it's one of the reasons why Orson Welles shot so many of his films in black and white. Uh, because he felt that it helped to accentuate uh, the human face more than other elements of the the mise-en-scene. Um, and Dreyer himself said that uh, nothing in the world can be compared to the human face. He says, uh, it, it's a land one can never tire of exploring. There's no greater experience in a studio than to witness the expression of a sensitive face under the mysterious power of inspiration. Um, so one of the elements, one of the reasons he, he was able to do that in this film, you've already alluded to, Sam, and that is that the film used um, panchromatic film stock. Um, the earlier silent films used orthochromatic, and the drawback to orthochromatic, or the element of orth- orthochromatic, is it doesn't show all the uh, colors of the spectrum. In particular, it doesn't show, I'm trying to remember now, I think it, it doesn't show um, red or, um, or red in particular. So that meant that in order to get, in, in, or, in order to see faces properly, in order to get the right kind of contrast, you needed a lot of makeup. So this freed him, or the, uh, uh, this, this film stock freed him from having to use makeup. And so it also meant that in order to get the white walls, the walls were actually painted yellow. And then that shows up as, uh, as, as white. So I have to do a geeky aside right now about film stock. If you want to see a film using the old orthochromatic film stock, a contemporary film, go see The Lighthouse. The Lighthouse is shot with orthochromatic, and you will notice how very different the faces look as a result. Um, hmm. But I also have to warn you, it's a very intense experience <laughs> for all viewers. Another thing that jumped out at me um, throughout this film was how... I mean, you start by getting these faces that are that basically take up the entire screen, and they they start usually very central on the in the framing. But this movie does a lot of things with playing with what area of the frame actions happening happening in, or even things are appearing in. Like I noticed in doorways often, or not often, but at times, like the doorway would be where you think the doorway would be at the center of the frame. It's like at the very bottom, and people sort of yeah. almost walk up into into the picture or, or there'd be t- t- lots of times where half the frame just was white and it, and no one ever entered that half of the frame. Um, and I just thought that was so interesting in terms of how they, how they frame shots to, 
you know, maybe, I mean, I, w- I was thinking about sort of why that was and, you know, are these supposed to be, uh, things that, that make you feel sort of unsettled, which would make mm-hmm. sense. Are these things that are sub- maybe at times we're seeing through Joan's eyes and Joan isn't always looking directly at the thing because there's also this sort of otherworldly, uh, elements to her where she's both there and not there. So I, I found that whenever that happened, I was, I found that really fascinating and, and, and pretty powerful. Yeah. I mean, there's no, I, I think I can only think of really maybe one establishing shot, uh, at least an interior one. There's a brief establishing shot of the, of the torture chamber. Otherwise there's almost nothing that orients you in space. Uh, and I think part of what Dreyer is going for is what you've said, first of all, is unsettling, but also um, he's trying to depict um, a spiritual battle uh, and to certain extent an intellectual battle. So in a way, the space is the human psyche, the human mind, the human soul. And so the physical space is less important than those interior spaces. The other thing I would point out is that um, the uh, the set designer for the film was one of those, one of the set designers for the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. So if you're familiar with the spatial weirdness of that film and the whole German expressionist um, tradition. I think that Dreyer is kind of working in that tradition as well. There's one really interesting shot, I think it's early on in the film, where over the shoulder of the judges, you see these two windows and they're like different sizes. They're right next to each other, but they're completely different different sizes. Uh, so I think that's, that's all part of this kind of, I, in a way, it puts you a little bit in Joan's frame of mind, right? Because she is the one who is being kind of disoriented by these, by these judges. And he wants you very intensely to feel her experiences. So your daughter's re- reaction you mentioned earlier was exactly what Dreher was going for. Well, and, and I loved I loved the the fact that um, even in the dialogue of it uh, of the of the film and the, and the way that the dialogue and um, and the the acting when there isn't when it's clear something is said but we're not hearing what's said you know th- th- that's really effective. I love how there is so much of this where. Joan can't explain. They're ask, it's like they're asking her questions and she doesn't say it exactly, but it's like you're asking the wrong questions. Like like they're you know they're asking these very like specific things about the the angel's hair and like was he wearing clothes and how do you know and and she's just like like I saw an angel. What are you asking me about? You know, and 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 I feel like that that's so clearly what happened and it's that's so it's so well conveyed and I think part of it is the the Falconetti performance where she is, uh, I mean, it's such, it's such a stirring image and you see it so much in there, but it's like she's both at the center of the frame and couldn't be closer and tighter, but she almost never looks at you either. Like she's looking up, she's looking away. Um, and it's so, so, it's, so again, like I said, she's, she's both there and not there. Um, can you talk, uh, or do you have anything to say about her performance? Because it is, I will say one of the, before watching this, the image that I knew from this movie was both her getting her hair cut. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the image of her with the arrow and the, the <laughs> hay crown um, that somehow seeped through to me. I don't know where I've seen that before, but when it, when it appeared on the screen, it's both a striking image and a familiar image to me. Yeah, well, you know, the, the film is called The Passion of Joan of Arc, of course, and so, you know, he's obviously Dreyer is creating images that reflect the passion of the Christ. Um, that particular scene you're talking about, to me, seems, it both has elements of typical depictions of Christ for the crucifixion, 
but there's also a little bit of uh, Saint Sebastian in there as well with that with the, with the, with the arrow. Um, you know, Falconetti was a really close collaborator with with Treyera in uh, in their performance, and he really praised her for her ability to kind of give him uh, exactly what what he wanted in terms of how her expressions were intended to draw the viewer into feeling how she is feeling. And so there's a description of uh, they would watch the rushes together uh, and he would, you know, suggest, you know, here's a, here's an adjustment I need you to make. Here's what I'm really going for. And she was actually able to do that. So they had a very, very close working, working relationship. Um, the haircutting scene, uh, that was the only thing she asked him not to do. Uh, and he, he insisted on that. So that's because uh, one of the big things about this film, um, Sam, is Dreyer was going for um, as much authenticity as he could get at. I've often, I've often thought it's ironic that a silent film is based on a trial uh, minutes. Um, but he really wanted to create the sense, despite all the kind of artistic things we just talked about with camera angles and, and all that, he actually wanted to create the sense of uh, looking at history through a, through a keyhole. So when the film was originally shown, there are no credits. Um, it just plays. And, and uh, so the credits we see today have been added, were added at the restoration. But there were no credits, no titles. I mean, there are intro titles, but no film title or anything like that. He really wanted us to feel as though we had kind of been taken back to, uh, to 1321 and this was actually happening in front of us. And I was also, you know, in terms of thinking about trying to make this real, I was also struck by how this doesn't feel like silent film acting to me. Like, like it doesn't, there, there isn't moments where I, um, I think, and, and maybe this is true with silent, are silent films sometimes, do they run at a higher speed when you see them sometimes? There, there's something visually I, I picture and it, they seem more frantic in the action. Like they're trying to, they're just trying so much to talk, but can't talk. And I feel like this movie doesn't feel that way. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious about that, but I feel like, yeah, those performances seem naturalistic is the words I would use. And even Falconetti as Joan seems naturalistic for a mystic. Okay. So the, the, yeah, there's two, two different issues. One is frame rate. Um, you know, silent films were hand cranked. And so the typical, it, it depended. Sometimes they would crank as low as 16 frames per, per second, sometimes as high as 28. Um, most silent films were cranked around 20. So one of the big debates around around this film is whether we should uh, project it at 20 or 24. Uh, what we saw was 24. Uh, there are, uh, if you look at the Criterion disc, you actually can see examples of it being cranked at, at 20. Um, it looks like Dreyer wanted 24, but it's not definitive. Um, so anyway, that's just, a little, again, a little, a little film geekiness. Well, I will um, say thank you for that, because that actually, that may sound nerdy to you, but like, I loved that piece, because that, that was one of the things that, that, that I was really curious about. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, um, and I think it looks fine at 24. I haven't spent a lot of time looking at it at 20. I looked, looked at a little bit of it, but I don't think there's a big enough difference. But what you're getting at is very interesting, because in fact, Dreyer was uh, an admirer of Stanislavski, uh, the original, you know, method actor theorist. And and you're right. There is a there's a style of silent film acting which is much more external uh, than method acting or typical the acting that we're used to today. And in fact, um, Dreyer in in casting Falconetti felt that she actually in some ways embodied Joan. 
and the various um, clerics uh, during the whole of the shoot, and the, and the film was shot consecutively over six months. Uh, during the whole of the shoot, they had to they had to maintain their tonsures. <laughs> Even the clerics that were wearing skull caps underneath the skull caps, they had to have had to maintain their tonsures. So, but he also was looking for people who actually, in, in his view, kind of he wanted to get them to really inhabit the roles in the way that you typically would think of a method actor inhabiting a role. So you're right about that. It's a very different kind of acting style. I'm, I'm curious. So one of the, the quotes that I came across um, was from uh, Jean Cocteau, who said, it's like a historical document from an era in which cinema did not exist. And I'm curious, like, did, did anything else at the time look like this? No, this is uh, this is really avant-garde, in, in literally. In fact, it didn't get a wide distribution because it was sort of immediately seen as kind of an art house film, uh, and there were those people who thought that it was it was kind of tedious. Um, they were kind of tired of the close-ups, uh, and even even Eisenstein, whom Dreyer admired, and some scenes in this film are actually modeled on Battleship Potemkin, um, the mother, the baby at nursing at the breast. Uh, and the cannon at the end, because 14th century cannons could not traverse, but he has those cannons traverse in a way that they do on Battleship Potemkin. Even when Eisenstein saw the film in 1930, he said it was it was beautiful photographs, but not really a movie. Um, so even at the time, there were you know sophisticated filmgoers who didn't quite get the film or didn't quite think that what Dreyer did was working. Is there a chance that this looks better to somebody in 2021 than it did in 20 in uh, 1928? Like, cause I, 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 all those things sound ridiculous to me. Like this is, I, I was, I was blown away by it and I don't know why that is. Yeah. I, I think, I think it does Sam, because I think, first of all, we have seen, you know, since this time we've seen you know, almost a hundred years of film innovation. Uh, and I think, you know, so I think we're much more open to different ways of doing things and different ways of editing. So different styles of acting. So I think, yeah, it was, you know, in some ways kind of ahead of its time, um, for sure. So, so I also loved, uh, reading about the history. This film has a very interesting history, um, going back to the fact that, um, and I had forgotten this, that Joan of Arc isn't canonized until 1920. So this is within, within eight years of her canonization, um, which, which, so in some ways it is sort of a, a, a timely film to put out this thing that's, you know, 500 years after the events of this, but it, but there, it is, there is something about the 1920s where, where she would be a little bit more, um, relevant of a figure. Um, I have to point out since, since you pointed out sort of nerdy, uh, film stuff, I'm going to point out, a a, a, a very, it's probably just a, a coincidence. Um, but the, the, Paris premiere of this movie is October 25th, 1928. Do you know what October 25th is? No, I don't. It is St. Crispin's day, which in the hundred years oh, war, which Joan of Arc is part of, I mean, that that's the big English victory at Agincourt. Um, yeah. So it's interesting that this, and again, it's probably a coincidence, but that it comes out on, um, you know, 500 some years later on to the day of the battle of Agincourt. Well, it's funny you should say that because you know the film was uh, was was banned in Britain because it was seen as anti as anti British, of course. Um, you know, so it, it's not that long after World War One, and uh, even though the helmets of the soldiers in the film are historically accurate for the 14th century, they also look a lot like the World War One helmets. Um, Absolutely. And of course, there was also there was even people just disturbed in France about the idea that Dreyer uh, was you know, a Dane was gonna was gonna direct 
uh, you know, this film about this great French saint. Um, so, but the other thing I would add about about that is that um, uh, one of the advantages of silent film, of course, it doesn't matter matter uh, what country your actors are from. And evidently, Lillian Gish was hmm. initially considered for the role of Joan. So then when this movie is about to come out, it, it faces some pretty strict uh, censorship from uh, from the church mm -hmm. uh, because of sort of how the, the, the church is portrayed. So there's there was Dreyer's original cut, and then there were the sort of censored edits, and the original cut kind of disappears for decades and decades yeah. um and 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 so it was interesting reading just about all of the different versions and like when people saw this and then in the 1980s it's the the original cut a, a copy of that is discovered in a mental institution in oslo norway and all of a sudden people can see the the you know the dreyer's dreyer's vision in that way yeah exactly so which is you know kind of gets back to a question you had asked uh last week we were talking about city lights you know why did it suddenly rise so many uh so many uh, places on the afi list and part of it is well I, as i said last week maybe more people are seeing it and so same thing with joan of arc you know people hadn't yeah. seen it for all those years and then it comes out and and and, and you are looking at it with fresh eyes um uh, and in a very different context yeah and it probably benefited from not being around and then all of the sudden sort of appearing out of nowhere almost as a new film in a way yeah yeah um another thing in terms of realism uh that i read about so i, I assume what i read is true here the uh when they bleed joan mm -hmm. that's actually uh, a production assistant getting their vein oh that's real that is not that's an effect right, exactly. and i remember I, I watched it and just thought that is like i was physically ill watching it and then reading that it was real like the next time i watch this i'm gonna have a hard time with that scene because i could tell myself when i saw it like ah, it's just that yeah, that's yeah. not real and apparently there's another cut of it um in one of the other cuts they use a different version of it where there's a lot less blood splatter because the person had lost so much blood at that point that the blood didn't spray in the same way so what so what we see is the original cut literally i'm glad it's in black and white that's right <laughs> That's right. Um, other things that I would say uh, about this movie, um, one of the highest compliments I can give something um, personally is I love art that makes me want to make art. And mm. I got to say, when I watched this, the thing I most wanted to do was get my camera out. And I wanted to take portrait, portrait photographs. I wanted to make a movie. Like I just, this really made me want to make something. Um, and I don't know if Dreyer was, was, I don't know if that's a compliment to an artist or not, but like, this is, this is one of those things. Persona was like that too, where it's just like, I I'm so moved by looking at these images. I want to get a bunch of lights out and I want to play with lighting and I want to think about the human face. And it, like, so I was, I, I was a thousand percent sort of seduced into that. And I loved it. I, I think Dreyer would be happy to know that. <laughs> Uh, there's a quote from Ebert um, that I, this is kind of getting back to the, the Falconetti performance and like how uh, maybe how we see this in, in modern um, with modern eyes. Um, he says uh, to modern audiences raised on films where emotion is conveyed through dialogue and action more than by faces. A film like the passion of Joan of Arc is an unsettling experience so intimate that we fear we will discover more secrets than we desire. And I would like, that was of all the things I read, that was the, that summed up part of the feeling too, that, that it is, um, 
because of because we are spend so much time with her face and again and this is this is how i felt about um bb anderson in persona like there's a kind of intimacy i feel like i have with that face and that person because we spend so much time so close to them and you realize how infrequently you you're that close to somebody's face especially when it's up on a big screen like that um and it it almost to the point where when, when she would move her eyes and it would even come close to looking at the camera, it's almost like I had to like push myself back because I couldn't, I couldn't be too close to that gaze. I just thought that image was really powerful. Yeah, which is, which is interesting because as you said, she never really, she very rarely, if ever, looks directly at you and yet, and yet she really draws you in. But at the same time, um, you know, I think in some ways you're also put in the position of the judge and you mm -hmm. have to kind of out. You have to kind of figure out, you know, where, 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 where do my loyalties lie? Or because it's a power struggle, and uh, you know, who has power here, and who should have power, and what is the power? So I think it really draws you in that way. Yeah, and and I'm just moved by the, uh, and this is getting to the sort of the the Catholic saint part of this. Like I'm moved by the conviction of uh, of Joan, you know, and. I, I, thinking of and uh, thinking about like the the world we live in now you know and and this is i'm going to make this comment free of political party because you can find it in either you know you can find it in lots of places but uh i feel like the world's full of people for for whom their convictions can be pretty fluid depending on the way the winds are blowing mm -hmm. and with with her there is just like like i am moved by this person who is um the struggle seems real to be like like I feel like there's there's moments where she wants to save her life. I mean, she, even to the point where, whether her hand is moved for her, it's like she does sign that. Like there is that struggle is real, but then there is just the that the moment where she sort of realizes that she has kind of betrayed the one thing that seems that is most real and most important to her. Um, I there's moments where I just feel like we need more of that in our. I will say I'll, I'll use I statements. I need more of that in my life. I need to be more you know, sort of willing to, to hold to those things that I should be holding to most dear. And I feel like this movie, uh, this movie spoke to that. Well, you know, and I, I think one of the, one of the ways the movie achieves that is that, um, Dreyer is very selective in, in, uh, the, uh, the aspects of Joan's character and the elements of the trial that he draws on, because there really are kind of three elements to Joan. One, one, are one would be Joan is the visionary. Um, but the other would be Joan as the, the warrior. And then the third would be Joan as a sorceress and, and, and the various charges of sorcery uh, and witchcraft that were leveled against her. Um, and he gives you a Joan, which, I mean, it's really stripped down to um, Joan who has an extraordinary relationship with God. Uh, that's, that's a powerful challenge to the church. Uh, and he, I mean, he really... Uh, focuses on this as a struggle of of, of the soul for freedom, um, and and I think that's one of the really most powerful things about it because it really gets down to fundamental issues about my relationship to God and my relationship to er earthly authorities and how I and and my relationship to my own experiences of what it means to have a relationship with God. I mean, that's really what he's kind of focusing in on. Yeah, and I will say the the word the word martyr means witness, right? And people who would often witness martyrdoms would then want to go and evangelize. And I got to tell you, this week with this, I can't tell you how many people I've said, you know what movie you really need to watch? This 1928 movie called The Passion of Joan of Arc. I, I, I everybody in my department, I've said like, it's it's. I mean, especially for historians, right? That it's based on this primary source, 
And um, you know, I think about uh, the course I teach CWC. We, we've we've talked about doing like a film series, and I think, oh, this would be such a great. If I ever get to teach on the the fifteenth um, century, kind of late Middle Ages, I will. I want to think about how to use moments from this from this film when we talk about Joan of Arc. So like this is this has been really powerful for me in that way. Are there things you want to talk about with this movie? Yeah, I just want to pick up on that for just a minute, Sam, then one other thing. Um I think that what you just said is interesting because I think that showing it to today's students, it's really not the it, the fact that it's a silent film is really not as prominent as the fact that it's so avant-garde in other ways. You know, mm -hmm. so, you know, I, I, so I, I think, I think in, in that respect, I think that's why I could work with today's students because they're kind of open to experimental things in, in film. Um, I guess I just want to point out one other element of the film's um, structure, because uh, often we wa when we watch our movies, we talk a little bit about structure. Um, in, in the silent film era, there was a tendency, once films got to be multi-real, there was a tendency to connect the structure of the film with the structure with the, with the changing of the reel. So, um, Passion Joan of Arc has five reels, and it basically has about five acts. So you have the the first reel is um, is the first trial you might say in the in the chapel, which is kind of analogous to. Um, Sometimes, we, you know, when we teach literature, we talk about five acts or so-called Freitag's triangle. So that's kind of the exposition. And then the next section is the trial and when it moves to her cell. And that's kind of like the rising action. And then the third reel is kind of the climax. It's in the torture chamber and the bloodletting. And then the fourth reel is what's called the falling action, which is her abjuration. And then the final reel is her denouement for her death. So it's very carefully... Uh, structured in that particular uh, way by by Dreyer, which also you know is a way of kind of framing historical action. Of course, the other thing to say is, in fact, Joan of Arc's trial was over was twenty two separate interrogations over several months, and Dreyer has beautifully collapsed that. I and mean, as the other thing, you could say, where are we in space? But you could also say, where are we in time? Did this was this one day? I mean, it's really it's really hard to tell. Well, it's also interesting because I don't know that my daughter knew the story of Joan of Arc much. I mean, I'm sure she doesn't know the story of the Hundred Years' War uh, with with much detail. And this, the movie doesn't bother to give you too much of that. Um, and and even even with her, she, like she got it. She got what it was about, even without me saying, "Okay, let me set the stage. Let me talk about kind of like she just that 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 stuff um, that stuff absolutely worked." So Barrett, uh, are there uh, are there other things you want to talk about here, or should we move on to next week? Well, um, yeah, I want to talk about one other thing, which is what I wish we were moving on to next week, but we're not going to be able to. Um, there's a really interesting film by uh, by Robert Bresson, who's one of the great French filmmakers of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Very another very idiosyncratic filmmaker uh, with a method very different from from Dreyer's. Um, and he really disliked this film intensely. Uh, and he made a film called The Trial of Joan of Arc, which is uh, 1962, which is uh, much fuller in terms of, he used a lot more of the transcripts. It's a talkie, obviously, so the English speak English in the film and the French speak French. I really recommend it. I think it's really an interesting film to see in, in contrast to Dreyer's. But unfortunately, it's not, generally available unless you have access to a criterion disc. 
So did, did, did Dreyer like what? What other films did Dreyer make? Is this like other Dreyer films, or was this an experiment for him? And then he did other things. Well, you know, he he, he did a number of, of silent films. He made something called um, Vampire right after this. Uh, he made another film. His name is not coming to me right now. But then in the fifties, he made uh, he made a really interesting film called Ordet or The Word, which is about a guy who thinks that he's Jesus Christ and may actually bring somebody back from the dead. Uh, his last film in 64 is called Gertrude. Um, they're very kind of, um, they're very different. Uh, I mean, his, his, his talky style is very different from his, he didn't really make anything else like this film. I and mean, this film is really is sui generis. I just connected a dot to myself because um, when we watched First Reform, we talked about the movie Ordet. Yes. That's one of the, that's one of the, I, yeah, so that, that's one of the movies that, that Schrader was talking about as he was yeah. thinking about yeah. that movie. Transcendental Absolutely. film. Brisson's another transcendental filmmaker as well, but very different. So, anyway, so I would recommend if people get, get access to a Criterion disc, you can get about 25 minutes of Brisson's film on YouTube. Uh, you can get a, get a flavor for it. Very different Joan of Arc. She's very young. She's about 21 years old. Uh, Brisson uh, used non-professional actors. Uh, so in a sense, it's, it's a different way of getting at method acting <laughs> in, in, a, in a sense, but very different from, uh, from a Dreyer performance. Well, I'm going to look for that because I'd love to see that. But what do you have for us for next week? Well, I'm, I'm going to go very contemporary now. Uh, I, I want to watch one of the best films of last year, which is available on, on, on Amazon Prime, and that is Kelly Reichert's First Cow. Um, I'll just, I'll, it's a really interesting film. I, I, it's only the second Reichert film I've seen, but I, really, I, I saw that in Sam, and I thought, I really want to talk about this film. So I want to watch it again and talk about it. Well, this is a movie that I have heard of a, a number of the podcasts I listen to. I've, I've heard them reference this film a lot. So I, this is one that's on my list of things that I wanted to see anyhow. So what a great, worked out perfect. This, the, so we'll watch that uh, for next week. Barrett, I cannot, I say this every week, but I really cannot thank you enough for recommending this. This is a, this is a film that's, that's like borderline life-changing for me. So I, I, I really, I really loved it. I, this is one that I will go back to um, again and again. Um, I, I've been working on my list as we get to our, to 50 films on here. I've been working, I've been ranking them and this one's real high. I, I won't, I won't, uh, I won't ruin the list, but this one is really, really high on the list. Um, so, uh, so I loved that. Um, but we will be, if you're enjoying this, you can check out our website, videostorepodcast.wordpress.com. You can find all of our episodes on there. Um, we will be back next week to talk about First Cow in the video store.